You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 18. We'll be looking at two chapters today, Job chapter 18 and Job chapter 19, as we continue our series called When the Righteous Suffer. I wonder if you've ever spent time with someone who was so discouraged that you wondered if they would ever recover. Someone who was in such deep darkness and despair that you questioned whether they would ever get out of it. If you haven't, it's only a matter of time before you will, because part of the sad reality of this broken, fallen world that we live in is that people can descend so deeply into darkness and depression and despair that it's hard to find their way out. Even strong, mature Christians can talk about life as if it's not worth living or doubt that God cares. David spoke about this in part in Psalm 23 when he talked about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But whereas David could say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We don't always experience that because we're not always sure that God is with us. In fact, we might know that God is with us, but we doubt whether God is for us. These are the kinds of thoughts that haunt us and make it so much harder to endure through extended seasons of suffering. Many of you know what this is like, but you also know what it's like to see something suddenly change, whether it's in your own heart or in the heart of the person you're trying to help. It could be a random text from a friend. It could be a passage of scripture that you read in your devotions. It could be a sermon that you hear on a Sunday morning. Whatever it may have been, all of a sudden, you have a different perspective. Your your countenance changes. Your heart is lifted up. You have hope again. Your hope may not be strong. Perhaps your hope may not be consistent. It comes and goes. It it wanes. It becomes strong and weak. But, But the fact is, there is hope. There is hope present in your heart, like like a firework bursting in the night sky. You can finally see some some light, some beauty, some goodness in the midst of your darkness. And you come to believe that maybe, just maybe, there is more to your darkness than you thought. Job is a man who has descended into deep darkness and discouragement. Job has lost all his wealth Job has lost all 10 of his precious, beloved children and all reason to believe that his life has meaning. Job is estranged from his wife. Job is condemned by his friends. And worst of all, Job feels abandoned by God. And that itself was greater than anything that he suffered. It, was, it wasn't just the loss of his friends, the loss of his family, the loss of his wealth. It was the perceived loss of his God. He's, he's wondered at times if God could restore him and make all things right. He's wondered if God could advocate for him and witness for him on high and declare that he is innocent. But all those thoughts have quickly dissipated and descended back into despair as they evaporate in the mists of Job's doubts 
but in our text today, something changes in Job. Something turns his, his doubts into a certainty that God is indeed with him and God is indeed for him and God will indeed restore him. This is the point in the book where Job receives his first real burst of hope. The certain expectation that God will prove himself to be faithful, good, and just. That doesn't mean that his season of darkness is done. I mean, there are 42 chapters in this book and we're only going to be getting to the end of 19. He's, he's still going to be struggling with doubts and despair. But at the very least, this burst of hope means that he has fresh strength to keep going, to not give up, and to maintain his trust in God. And that is what is, isn't that what we need today? Uh, we, we need a fresh burst of hope, some, not just a wish, not just a hope, but a certainty that God will lead us out of this darkness and into his glorious presence. That, that's what we hope for today. And so the title of this sermon is A Burst of Hope. We're going to have three points today. First, hopeless rebuke. Second, hopeless loneliness. And third, hope for a redeemer. Now, for those who have been following our services online, you'll know that we've been walking through the book of Job over the last seven Sundays when we've been online. And we're in the middle of this extended conversation between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Please don't name any of your children any of those three names because they're not the good guys in this story. The pattern is always that one of the friends speaks and then Job replies, followed by the next friend, then Job's reply, etc., etc. Over the entire book of Job, Eliphaz and Bildad have three speeches each and Zophar has two. This is Bildad's second speech. Now, if you look back at the first speeches of the three friends, you'll notice that they follow the same general pattern. They begin with warnings about what's going to happen to the wicked. Job, these are the kinds of things that happen to those who sin without repenting. And then they transition to the promises that await those who repent. Job, God's going to restore your whole family. God's going to bless you beyond your imagination. There are all these good things that are going to come to you. They warn him of what happens to those who don't repent, and they promise him of what will happen to those who do. Now, the problem with all their counsel, of course, as we've seen, is that Job doesn't need to repent. He didn't do anything wrong to deserve all his loss, and, and he knows it. And we know it as well as the readers, because we heard God pronounce in chapters 1 and 2 that Job is blameless and upright, that he fears the Lord and he turns away from evil. And so Job rightly refuses to repent and scolds his friends for assuming things about his life that just aren't true. Now, as we study the second cycle of speeches, the three friends adopt a very different tone. Gone are the promises of restoration. Gone are the comforts that, that repentance would bring. All that is left is a graphic description of all the horrible things that are going to happen to Job. They give him what you could call a hopeless rebuke. A rebuke that is merely meant to wound and not to heal. Uh, a rebuke that is meant to warn and not to give hope. It's the equivalent of someone today just saying, 
You are so wicked that you are going to hell and nothing's going to change that. You deserve punishment. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about hell. I mean, Jesus spoke far more about hell than we do and perhaps spoke more about hell than we are comfortable with. There is certainly a place for warning people about the eternal fate that, that uh, remains for those who don't repent and put their trust in Christ, but, but it cannot stop there. It's never enough to win someone over by the fear of God's punishment. We are called to win people over by the promise of God's love. Fear of punishment by itself may produce people who are religious, but it won't produce people who are transformed by the love of God into those who love God and love neighbor as themselves. As Paul says in the book of Romans, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. But we don't always do that, do we? I mean, if you're a parent here, you know what I'm talking about. You know how easy it is to just scare our children into submission rather than winning them over with love. We just say, don't do that because it'll break your neck. Don't lie to me or I won't trust you. Honor your father and mother because if you don't, God's blessings won't come to you. Now, we don't mean to do that. None of us want children who are motivated by fear. We want them to be motivated by love. And we know that only the love of God can transform God's people into loving people. And yet it is so hard at times to, to transition from rebuke to comfort, from warning to promise. And do you know why? Do you know why it's so hard? It's because of our anger. It's because of anger. When we're angry, we don't care about comforting those we're angry with. We only care about changing their behavior so that they'll stop doing what's getting under our skin and we can move on to living happily again. Well, that's what Bildad does in Job chapter 18. He is angry with Job. We see that in verses two and three. It says, how long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Bildad is personally insulted by how Job has responded to his counsel and his correction. Job has so thoroughly rejected the counsel of the three friends that they perceive Job as seeing them as brainless, dumb, stupid, not much more than brainless cows. And that's what makes Bildad so angry. Bildad is also angry because of the implications of Job's ideas. Look at that, look at verse four. He says, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? I wonder if you know someone who is a bit of a perfectionist, who needs everything to be in its proper place. The kind of person who needs to tilt all the chairs at exactly the right angle. Those who on their desk, all their pens are always in the same order, organized by some arbitrary system, by color or by length of pen, whatever it is. Well, Bildad is like that. Okay, Bildad fusses about where things are, except he's not just fussing about what's in the home. He's fussing about people's ideas, what kinds of ideas are spreading in the world, and he symbolizes the ideas as rocks. Every rock needs to be in its proper place, which for Bildad means that every idea needs to fit within his black and white world that perceives that everything that people get, they deserve. The righteous 
deserve prosperity, and so they prosper. The, the wicked deserve punishment, and so they suffer. And to suggest otherwise is to bring disorder to his neatly ordered world. For Bildad, this is not only frustrating, this is evil, this is wicked, and horrible things happen to the wicked. Bildad wants to make sure that Job understands exactly what horrible things are going to happen to him for moving the rocks in his well-ordered world. Verses five and six. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Bildad speaks of a, of a place reserved for wicked people like Job that are characterized by endless darkness. Even if you try to light a fire, even if you try to, to, to start a light, that light will be extinguished by the power of this darkness. We've heard recently, you know, in popular culture about the, the, the inhumane practice of solitary confinement when people are put in a dark place without human contact. Well, th- this is like that. This is a place of dark, solitary confinement, except it stretches on without end. Bildad then describes what many of us may have experienced in our nightmares. If you're like me, you may have had a nightmare before where you're just running from some unknown terror. You're running away as fast as you can, but you're not, you're not getting any farther away from this danger to your life, and then you wake up and your heart's beating. You're like, what, what was that? Well, Bildad describes that, except in this terror, it catches up to Job. Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, And he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. Then then what happens? What happens when Job is caught? Verses 13 and 14. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Bildad's imagination is running wild right now. He's saying, Job, you you will be chased, you will be pursued, you will be trapped, you will be dragged from your home, and you will be brought before this dark Lord who will terrorize you with his might. As if that were not enough, Bildad adds that Job will be homeless, verse 15, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. He will be forgotten, verse 17. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street and he will be childless, verse 19. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. In his dark nightmare speech, this projection of what awaits Job is summarized and ended in verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. That's all he has for Job. There's a word for that in today's parlance. It's called spiritual abuse, where God's word, God's truths, God's gospel realities are taken not to heal, but to wound, to hurt, to crush. And that is what Bildad is doing because he is angry. 
He is furious with Job. And no longer does he want to comfort Job. He wants to hurt him. And in so doing, he shows that he is the one who is in the wrong and not Job. Now, how will Job respond? How is he going to respond to this warning of these horrible things that are going to happen to him? Well, not as Bildad would have hoped. Because Job knows, he is convinced in his own mind that he is not one of the wicked. And therefore, he will not suffer the consequences of the wicked. But that doesn't make life any easier for Job. Job may not be tormented by the king of terrors, but he is tormented by his own friends. And this leads to our second point, hopeless loneliness. In verses two and three, Job answers with his own rebuke for Bildad. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? I mean, we've heard Job say this again and again, right? Why do you keep hurting me? Why are you such a miserable comforter? You are tormenting me. Why do you feel like everything I say needs a response? Aren't you ashamed of what you're doing to me? Well, the friends are not ashamed. They're not done talking because for them, this has become more about proving their point and winning the argument than comforting their friend. Well, Job tries to prove his point in verse four. He says, even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. He's saying, even if you're, even if you're right, that I've done all these horrible things, that I am a sinner who hasn't repented. Even if you are right, and I am a great sinner who needs to repent, that sin is mine, and mine alone. What about my children, who lay buried under the house of the oldest brother's home? What about my wife, who is so embittered in soul that she told me to curse God and die? What, what about my servants, who were slaughtered by the raiding bands of robbers? This goes far beyond the question of what I have done. What about them? Job then returns to the thought that has plagued him since his world came crashing down around him. It's the thought that God has done something wrong, that God has wrongly afflicted him. Verses five and six. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job wants relief. He just wants God to stop hurting him. And so he cries out for help, but he receives no answer. Verse seven, behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Then in verses eight to 12, he describes what God has done. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. You know, Job doesn't just feel abandoned by God. Job feels attacked 
by God. For some inexplicable reason, Job believes that God has made him his enemy. I mean, what other explanation could there be for Job's suffering? He didn't know the answer, and and neither do we. But we know a little more than Job did because we were privy to the heavenly counsel in chapters one and two. We, we know that Job was the farthest thing from God's enemy. Job was God's friend. Job was the most faithful of God's servants. And Job wasn't suffering because he had a fake faith. Job wasn't suffering because he had secret sins. Job was suffering because God knew that his faith was so real and it was so strong that it would endure even the hottest furnace of affliction. God led him through the valley of the shadow of death and made him feel abandoned there in order to prove that there are people in the world who will still worship him even though they lose everything that they love. But as Job reflects on what God has done to him, he lingers on one thing that has caused him more pain than the others. It's the loss of those he loves. I mean, yes, he's lost his children, he's lost those who have died, but in a very real way, he has also lost those who still live. Verses 13 and 14, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are holy, estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me. Now, if you've ever experienced deep, lasting suffering, you know what Job is talking about. You know what it's like to have people who were once close friends, confidants, become distant strangers. Sometimes it's because they have nothing to say to you, they don't know how to comfort you, and they want to avoid those awkward conversations. Sometimes it's because they don't have the time or the energy to carry your burdens with you. They have enough on their own plates. And sometimes it's because they are secretly judging you because they assume that you must have done some secret sin to deserve what you are experiencing. And that's what Job's friends believed. Job doesn't just feel abandoned by his friends. He feels mocked. He feels scorned. He feels ashamed by how his closest friends and family are treating him. He even describes being disrespected by his guests and by his servants. And in verse 18, he says, even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. Now, this is one of those moments where we remember where Job is. Job is not grieving and lamenting in the privacy of his own home. He is sitting in the public dump, in the ash heap, and he's covered with dirt, and the worms are crawling over his body. And as people pass by, they don't show him mercy, they don't show him compassion, they laugh at him. Even the children come about and they behold him as a spectacle for their own amusement. Job has only one thing to say to those who treat him like this. In verse 21, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. This is the cry of a man who is crushed by the hopelessness of his loneliness. He doesn't know what to do about it. 
Now, it is in this context of Job being in the lowest part he could be, the lowest place he could be, this, this place of deep lament, that Job actually feels his first burst of hope. It's only when he has lost everything that he becomes convinced that there must be something else. There must be something better to come. There, there must be a brighter tomorrow a day when he will no longer be defined by his suffering and mocked because people don't understand what he has gone through. And this leads to our final point, hope for a redeemer. Job transitions to this last part of his speech with a longing for permanence. He cries in verse 23 and 24, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job has come to the place when he's thinking about his legacy. What will he be known for after he dies? He knows that his life is fleeting and his dark days are passing by quickly before his eyes and he can't stand the thought that he would be remembered as poor, wretched, wicked, Job, he wants to preserve his legacy. But it's not his legacy of greatness that he is concerned about. He's not saying, I want all my possessions to be written and recorded in a book so that all the generations after me will know how much stuff I had. No, he says, oh, that my words were written. It's his words that he wants to preserve his legacy because it is his words that claim his innocence. It's his words that upheld his integrity. It's his words that prove that he never did curse God as Satan predicted and as his wife called him to. And in the verses that follow, Job gives us some of the most memorable words in all of scripture. Words that would not only be engraved in a rock but inscripturated in God's word so that they will endure beyond the passing of the heavens and the earth. For I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another my heart faints within me. For those who have been following our series online, you'll know that there have been times when Job has longed for this person in heaven to speak on his behalf, this witness on high, this advocate, this mediator who will stand before God and him and declare that he is innocent. But what was nothing more than a fleeting fancy in the past has now become a confident assertion. He says, I know, not I wish, not I hope, I know that my Redeemer lives. He knows that there is a Redeemer, one who will stand in his place, one who will be his substitute and rescue him from his affliction. That's what a Redeemer does. In the Old Testament, A redeemer was the one who avenged you if you were murdered. A redeemer would buy back your land and bring you back to it if you lost it because it was stolen or because you owe too much money. 
A redeemer was the one who gave your wife and your family line a child if you died without an heir. A redeemer stands in the place of the one who is wronged and makes it right. And Job knows that his redeemer lives. In fact, Job knows that his redeemer will always live for at the last He will stand upon the earth. His redeemer will not be buried under the earth. His redeemer won't be consumed in the passing of the heavens and the earth. His redeemer will stand upon the earth as Job's everlasting redeemer. And at the last, on that last day, Job also knows that he will stand with him. After his skin has been destroyed, after the boils that have emerged from his head to his toes have finally wrecked his body, he says, yet in his flesh he shall see. He shall see who? Who is this redeemer? Who who shall he behold? Yet in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see God. I shall see God and live Because at the end of the day, Job knows that God isn't his executioner. He knows that God is his redeemer. God himself will stand in his place and rescue him from his afflictions. And that is what God has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Job's redeemer is Jesus. And our redeemer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who stood in our place to make our wrongs right. Our sins made us wrong with God. So Christ made us right by his death on the cross. Our sins cast us far away from God's presence. And so Christ came down from heaven and sought us. Our sins put us under the curse of death. So Christ became a curse for us that we could receive God's blessing. Galatians 3 verse 13 as Christ redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. My friends, Christ is our redeemer and Christ is the only redeemer that we will ever need because though he died, we can say, I know that my redeemer lives. I know that he lives because he was raised on the third day by the power of the Spirit, and by the plans of the Father. I know that he lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth as he makes all things new. And I know that after my skin has been destroyed, after my body lies in the grave, from dust we return to dust, yet in our flesh we shall see God with our own resurrected eyes, We shall behold our Redeemer and not another because our Redeemer lives and he makes us live in him. We we will stand with him at the last day upon the new heavens and the new earth and behold his glory and be transformed in an instant in his image. This was Job's great desire. This was Job's burst of hope. And this is what made his heart faint within him. The very thought of beholding his living redeemer caused his heart to faint. And it is this same hope 
that sustains and renews us today. So do you know this living redeemer? Do you know that your redeemer lives because he rose again on the third day? Do you know that all who trust in this redeemer and hope in him will also live with him at the last day? Do you know that even after your skin has been destroyed, your flesh has rotted away, you will see him with your own eyes? Well, if you know this redeemer, then today you have hope. You have hope today, not not just tomorrow, not just in a few years, not just when your pains go away. You have hope today. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It could be the darkness of depression or anxiety or fear. It could be chronic pain in your body or a battle with terminal sickness or the fatigue of living through this seemingly unending pandemic. It could be the loneliness of being abandoned by your friends or the pain of being betrayed by them. Whatever it is, if you have Christ, you have hope because your Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth as the sovereign loving ruler of all and the redeemer of your soul. My friends, these are hard days. There's no getting around that. There are difficulties that I know of and there are difficulties that I do not know of. And we live in a world that is increasingly collapsing under fear and anxiety and anger and division. And perhaps what you've seen in the world, you've started to see seep into your own soul. Well, my friends, let us us not look to the world and learn from the world and how the world responds to the world's afflictions and trials. Let us learn from Christ. Let us turn our mind's attention and our heart's affections to Christ, our risen Redeemer. If you do, you will feel what Job felt in his darkest moments, in his lowliest of seasons, you will receive a burst of hope. And Christ himself will sustain you until that last day when you stand with him and behold him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we say with Job that we know that our Redeemer lives. And he lives by your gracious plan and power as you received his sacrifice for sins, confirmed his word that it is finished, and gave us the assurance that all of our sins are paid for. And what awaits us is not everlasting pain. It is not a meeting with the king of terrors, but with the king of grace. Thank you for being our gracious redeemer. And I pray that in these dark days, we would put our trust in Christ. We would behold his glory and grace, and we will be given fresh hope for the dark days to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.